This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Time now to turn our attention to headlines from around the region. Mm, yes, indeed. And now uh, one of the major headlines, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visiting Southeast Asia in the hopes of deepening cooperation and, of course, boosting engagement within the region. Uh, in Malaysia, the parliament has finally passed the budget for 2022. So this will also be the country's largest allocation for its expenses. And finally, which country is consuming too much salt? <laughs> and how will that affect all of us in this region as well? I think that's Gosh. the most interesting one. And of course, we are possibly going to climax with that one. Yeah. So let's uh, have a conversation now with Leslie Lopez, regional correspondent for The Straits Times. Leslie, good morning. How are you? Good morning, good morning, Barty. I'm doing well. Well, Leslie, let's start uh, with the high-level uh, talk first. Mm. And not to say that salt isn't that high-level, <laughs> but I think we can take that discussion further. So let's start with things that we can get through more quickly first. Uh, namely, the visit of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to the region in an attempt to bolster economic and security cooperation, of course. But this is amid China's pushback, criticizing their aggressive actions, claiming open seas as their own. Mm. So let's talk about how the Biden Biden administration really views Southeast Asia in terms of its vitality in its efforts to push back against China's growing power? Well, you know, it's no surprise that the unlike the previous Trump administration, which largely took a more, you know, US-centric view and did not engage that much with, uh, with the region, the Biden administration is really trying to repair that and is clearly engaging with the region, which, you know, which is like a large, one of the world's largest single markets if you take Southeast Asia by its own, with more than close to 700 million uh, population. And I, so I think it's, it's clear that they need to engage with the region. And this is showing that, you know, basically they're using, they also want to counterbalance China's growing influence in, in this part of the world. And this Blinken visit clearly shows that you know, the U.S. commitment to this. And, you know, there is clearly pushback, you know, from China and how countries actually will view this new U.S. posture. But I think there is a general acceptance within the region that, you know, some kind of balancing of China's growing influence is re- is needed, especially in the South China Sea. So by all accounts, I think Britain's visit to the region is taken as a positive because most countries want to see some kind of greater U.S. involvement in the region. All right. Uh, Leslie, the Malaysian parliament recently passed a number of constitutional amendments to uh, elevate the status of Sabah and Sarawak within the federation. Uh, tell us a little bit about this and the significance of it. Well, you know, this, this is pretty significant. You know, both states have argued for greater autonomy arguing that they came into the Federation of Malaya on an equal status, and that was kind of taken away over the years. And they pushed hard in recent years for some kind of an elevated status, actually, having more autonomy over, over their affairs. I think um, the reason why um, both this concession is given now, I guess, reflects how weak the government is. In in Peninsular Malaysia, mm. and they have to accede to the demands of the of two states, where you know close to a third of the parliamentary seats come from. 
So the Sabah and Sarawak bring a very, very play an important role in the national political equation. And hence, you know, today we're seeing how the you know their status has been elevated to that of you know, they make up now the Borneo states, elevating yeah. their status to the two to the three entities that make Peninsular Malaysia. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. Now, Leslie, in the same vein, Malaysia's parliament also passed the budget for 2022. Uh, the bill actually sees Malaysia's largest allocation of 332.1 billion ringgit. Uh, this is, of course, the first budget under the government of Malaysian Prime Minister Ismail Sabri Yaakob. Tell us more about the need to increase this national budget in the face of fears that Malaysia could be incurring more debt, which could potentially burden future governments. Well, you know, there are a lot of misgivings here about the opposition's role and, you know, the MOU which is allowing for the budget to be approved. There are a lot of sounds that are, you know, that the opposition should be taking a much more strident look at the at government policies. And but yeah, you know, the budget, this budget is a huge one and concerns over government debt, national debt are there. And but you know, I think Malaysia is in a you know in a very tough place at this point. They need to spend their way out to get the economy going, especially with the COVID. And this is something that a lot of countries in the region have been forced to do. Malaysia is no exception. But the problem is the concern over the national debt is something that is very real, and is something that uh, economists fear could actually limit Malaysia's potential. You know, already, which is which is already understrained. We're on the line this morning with Straits Times Regional Correspondent Leslie Lopez. Leslie, this is an interesting one out of Myanmar. The National Unity Government, a parallel government led by the supporters of Myanmar's ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi, has recognized Tether as an official currency for local use after the group began fundraising for a campaign that seeks to topple the military regime. Uh, we understand that this is a form of cryptocurrency. How how did they arrive to this decision to, to sort of pivot to cryptocurrency? It feels like it, it's come out of nowhere. And uh, how's the military government uh, taking to this? You know, each time the military government does something, the opposition in Myanmar appears to get stronger. Mm-hmm. And this clearly is, this is a very novel idea. And pegging of data is, is also because it is it's a state it's stable because it's back to the US dollar. The cap, for example, has fallen by more than sixty percent since the coup. Okay. And more than sixty percent since the coup. And this also won't give the military any oversight in what the opposition will be doing in terms of raising money for their campaigns. So, you know, like like I said earlier, you know, each time the military government does something, it appears that the, the Myanmar opposition just keeps getting stronger, keeps outwitting them. And this is going to be an interesting one to see how the military tries to contain this. All right, and that very interesting story that we've been talking about on and off all morning, SALT. A salt tax could actually be implemented in Thailand next year uh, with a lead time of one or two years for industries to adapt. I mean, Leslie, we've heard about uh, the possibility of a sugar tax uh, with some countries having implemented that as well. 
How does salt fit into all of this? I mean, how much salt must the locals be consuming for the government to impose a salt tax? How challenging will it be to enforce it? How effective will it be to promote healthier living? You know, this is really a fascinating story. I mean, something that I just came out of the, out of the blue, actually. Apparently, a Thai person consumes an average of 3,600 3, milligrams of sodium daily. That's about 1.5 teaspoons of salt, which, according to the World Health Organization, is almost twice the recommended 2,000 milligrams. See, and the Thais take salty food. I don't know how this thing is going to impact on the local Thai food, which I really enjoy when yeah. I go to Bangkok. And so, but the thing is that some 10% of the population, more than 7 million people, suffer from chronic renal failure because of high sodium intake. Mm. So clearly this is a health concern in Thailand. And for for the government to consider imposing, uh, you know, a kind of a salt tax in, you know, in about two years, I think that's the plan, shows that, you know, this really is something that's getting out of hand and the government needs to, needs to, you know, have a national campaign, you know, to deal with the situation. Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, various Thai dishes trying to figure out which is the most salty. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually looking at how much salt we consume in Singapore. Apparently, according to the Health Hub, average intake of salt for an average adult in Singapore is 9 grams per day, which is actually more than the recommended 5 grams per day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. dear. No, but it's down to... Uh, are we giving the authorities here ideas too? Now they'll oh, start yeah, talking yeah. about something. <laughs> no, but it's down to also, at the yeah. end of the day, the, the, the food providers, right? Because we eat out, the restaurant mm. providers, the hawkers and all that. So this is going to really hurt their wallets, if anything else. I mean, the the idea is to encourage us to eat less salt, for them to use less salt in the cooking. But I am quite curious. Elliot, did you find out which is the saltiest Thai dish? They all look salty to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I love them all! Yeah, me too. I have to say. We've been on the line with Leslie Lopez, regional correspondent for The Straits Times. Leslie, appreciate your time. You take care and stay safe. Thank Thank you. Take care. Bye. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.